Louie. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, before we get into today's episode, I've got reader mail. Ooh, okay. Isn't that that hit me with it. It yeah. is exciting. I thought so too. It's always nice to get a bit of mail. It is good to get a bit of mail. This comes from Mary Zajac, who has been listening since the very first episode of the show. She's one of our biggest fans. Hello, Mary. She took a little time to write to us about our latest mini episode, uh, mini episode number 20. And she says, Dear Phil and Mike, I was listening to mini episode number 20 this morning. Mike, you were discussing The Fugitive and you stated that you never go out of your way to watch it. But whenever it comes on TV, you get sucked into it. I almost choked because the same exact thing happened to my son, Bobby, and I. Within the last two weeks, we were flipping through the stations, and The Fugitive was on, and we stopped to watch all of it. (laughs) Again, we don't go out of our way to watch it either, but when it comes on, we can't not watch it. I just couldn't believe that the situation you had described had just happened to us. So see, it's definitely one of those movies, I think, right? That's awesome. Yeah, it's The Fugitive Effect. Yeah, yeah, there you go, the fugitive effect. Good, that's our name for it from now on. So thank yeah. you, Mary. You have helped us dub the, the fugitive effect. Uh, she goes on to say, Phil, I have been a Star Trek fan ever since it debuted. God, I just dated myself. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, she must be talking about uh, the next generation. Right, so, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I must agree with you that The Wrath of Khan was the best movie after the TV show ended. With regards to the new Star Trek movies, initially I was not sure about how I felt about having a new Star Trek movie. However, after seeing it on the big screen, Chris Pine and the entire ensemble won me over in a heartbeat. Plus, you have to love Bruce Greenwood as Captain slash Admiral Pike. Oh, yeah, he's brilliant. I'm a huge Bruce Greenwood fan, yeah, as everyone knows, so I like that he got a little little shout-out there. Uh, and then she wraps it up by just saying, I really enjoyed this episode. I, I appreciated its mininess. Thanks for all you do. I don't know how you have the time to do all that you both do. And then she signs off. So, Mary, thank you for writing in and helping us dub The Fugitive Effect. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and sharing your thoughts on our episode. We are glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, that's, that's lovely to hear from you, Mary. Thank you very much. Yeah, so always nice to share some reader mail. If you want to uh, drop us a line about anything, uh, movies you want to hear after the endings for or anything like that, just email us at afterthending at verizon.net. Yes, and, and the reason how we can do all the things we do is because, as I'm sure you're aware, we have the Wayback Machine, which I use every week. Uh, me and Mike use that to, you know, spread out the time a bit. Yeah, oh, it's a yeah. bit like Hermione in Harry Potter using that time. Exactly. Thing. You know, we have this time travel capability, and rather than using it to make ourselves rich or something like that, we use it to bring our listeners the best podcast that we can. Now, that, that my friends, is dedication. That's that's very true. Damn, we, we've been using it all wrong, haven't we? <laughs> or stupidity. God. I mean, it could be what, it could be either or. It's a fine line. Uh, that's, that's, that's because we keep, I was watching Primer too much and didn't quite understand what was going on, so I just uh, thought, right. oh, let's just do it for this reason. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I am sure that our, our listeners and Mary appreciate our dedication uh, and not using time travel for personal gains. So. Yes, or, you know, for changing the world to make become a better place. That's right. Oh, well, at least at least we're making it more fun for people, you know, giving them things to listen to. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what we have in store for them today? Well, later on, we'll be giving you our top 10 films of 1985, and it was a... 
a pretty good year for movies, yeah, as most of the ones from the 80s are. Uh, and we'll be going after the ending of Space Jam and The Devil's Advocate. Hooah! <laughs> Well, that, Phil, as always, your uh, your impressions are without equal. N- notice that that's not actually a compliment. Yes, yes, I know. It Does, uh, doesn't mean they're great. It just means yeah. that, that nobody else is equals them. Yeah, I always like to think my impressions are never quite, you know, right. But you always know, know who they're meant to be. That You know, and that's the most important part, isn't it? They're all dreadful, but as long as you know who I'm doing, <laughs> that's all that matters. It's part of the charm, I think. Of course, because when I go, Hoo-ah! that's my Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's dead on. Uh, my, my Al Pacino is when I go, whoa. Nice. Go. Very good. I, I, <laughs> I, am, I am impressed. I think you're getting better, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> One day I'll crack it. Yeah. Oh, and if, we, if we, uh, we happen to meet Keanu Reeves at the New York Comic Con when we're both there, I might uh, you know, break that one out for him. Oh, I, I, I think he would be really impressed. Let me, let me, can I you know what? Do you want to hear a, a, a funny story that's rather embarrassing? I don't know why I'm going to share it for people to Go listen on, yeah. To. If it's embarrassing, let's hear it. So uh, at last year's New York Comic Con, I got to meet Alan Tudyk, uh, who is best known for playing Wash on Firefly and, of course, has been in 8 million different he's movies. He's amazing. He's like TV a leaf shows. in the wind. Yeah, he's fantastic. And uh, for years, people have been telling me that I look like him. Uh, I get it all the time. And while I was in line to meet him, two separate people told me, you look just like Alan Tudyk, which is a great compliment for me. Less of a compliment for him, especially <laughs> in my more recent years where I'm not quite as svelte as I used to be. So uh, when I got to meet him, you know, I, I get like, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds to, to, to talk to him. And so what do I say after I say, you know, thank you, you're great, all this? I say, you know what? I get told I look like you all the time. Now, in my head, oh, that seemed no. like a good thing to say. And, yeah. and he was very gracious. And he says, oh, yeah. He's like, I can see it around the eyes, which was very nice of him to say. But then I was like, so – Imagine you're some famous person and somebody comes up who's like <laughs> overweight and has like bad skin and like is waiting in line to see you. And what do they tell you? That they look like you. Like <laughs> really not not a great compliment. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's my Alan Tudyk story. He was awesome. Great guy. But I, I still to this day I'm like, what was I thinking? So my advice to you, Phil, is if you meet Keanu Reeves, do not do not give him your Keanu Reeves impression. I don't think it would go over as well in real life as it might in your head. I'm sure I will be perfectly able to embarrass myself in many other ways in front of many celebrities. It it is not that hard to do, believe me. No, yeah, I'm going to do it. And yeah, I can see a picture of you here because you're on my Skype. I can see, uh, yeah, you've got a a look of uh, Alan Tudyk now that you mention it. I'd never thought of that before, but yeah, I can see it, especially around the eyes. Yeah, there are some some pictures especially where it's more evident than others. But, again, just not what he wanted to hear, I'm sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, people have been saying recently that I look a bit like Mark Hamill in The Last Jedi. Ah, I, I consider, can see it. Considering he's in his 60s, though, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, damn. Not what you want to hear, right? No, I think it's all on the beard, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. And, well, and probably the fact that you walk around with a hood on and a lightsaber by your side all the time, too. That probably yeah, contributes and, to Yeah, and it. I have got, like, a cybernetic hand. Yeah, that'll do it, man. That'll do it every time. Yeah. yeah. All, all right. right. Well, what do you say we get into one of our movies? Let's kick things off with The Devil's Advocate, shall we? Yes, let's do it. Shall I take us through what happens in that? Yeah, yeah. Give us the breakdown. Okay. For new listeners, spoilers ahead. So it's uh, 1997's The Devil Advocate, The Devil's Advocate, uh, directed by Taylor Hackford. And starring Al Pacino, Keanu Reeves, Charlize Theron, and a few other people. And we follow defense attorney Kevin Lomax, played by Keanu, who's never lost a case. But in his latest case, he realizes that his client is way guilty. 
and Larry, who's a local reporter, warns him that a guilty verdict is inevitable. However, Kevin crushes the witness with some, you know, cool words and going, whoa, dude, and gets a not guilty verdict. Kevin is then offered a job at a law firm, a law firm in New York City, which is run by John Milton, played by Al Pacino. Kevin and his wife, Mary Ann, who's played by Charlize Theron, move to Manhattan, and Kevin throws himself into his work and sees less and less of Mary Ann. She starts feeling isolated, and Kevin is drawn to his co-worker, Christabel, who's played by Connie Nielsen in her debut film role. Marianne starts having nightmares and visions of people becoming demons, and she's also told she's infertile by a doctor. So she asks Kevin if they can return home to Florida, because she, she doesn't like being in New York. But he refuses. People end up dying, Kevin keeps working, Marianne sees more dark visions and demons, and Kevin ends up finding her in a church, and she says Milton raped her and brutalised her. Kevin doesn't believe her as he was in court with Milton at the time. So he has Marianne committed and she later kills herself. Uh, as you probably guessed by now, it's not a comedy. Uh, <laughs> no, Kevin's mother, not. yeah, Kevin's mother Alice reveals that Milton is actually Kevin's father and he admits to raping Marianne. You know, Kevin then tries shooting Milton, but they don't work because Milton reveals that he is Satan. Dun, dun, dun. Kevin ends up blaming Milton for everything that's happened. But Milton says he just set the stage and Kevin could have left at any time. He then says he wants Kevin and Christabel, who's actually Kevin's half-sister, to have a child, which would be the Antichrist. Yeesh. But rather than do that, Kevin shoots himself in the head and dies. However, he then wakes up and finds himself back at the opening court case, which I mentioned at the start. And he ends up saying he cannot represent this client, even though he risks being disbarred. The reporter, Larry, asks for an interview uh, promising to make Kevin a celebrity for, for doing the right thing. Kevin agrees, and then we see Larry turning into Milton, who then says, Vanity, definitely my favourite sin. Hoo-ha! And that's uh, The Devil's Advocate. I, I like it. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. I like this movie. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I've, uh, I've only seen it. I saw when it came out, and then once about five years afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because it's you know it wasn't a massive box office hit, but it certainly wasn't a failure either. But I yeah, and, and yeah. I don't think it was critically all that well received. But I don't know anybody who doesn't like it who's seen it. Like not like it's a big like everyone's favorite film or anything. But you, if you, whenever it comes up, people are always like, "Oh yeah, I like that movie. It's a fun movie." I mean, fun is a subjective term, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It's, no, it's, I know it's, what you it, mean. I always like a you know a devil movie and yeah, like it's that, an so. enjoyable thriller. You know, it's got some cool moments in it. It's it's you know it's, it doesn't it knows what kind of movie it is, and and I, I think it's a fun flick. Yeah, I mean, and it's, uh, I mean, I know it's dreadful what Charlie Theron's character goes through, but it's good seeing what's happening to her while Keanu is, you know, living the life fantastic in the law firm. Right, yeah. right. Okay, well, that's uh, that's what happens in the film. But what do you see happening the day after, Mike? All right. Well, Kevin and Marianne return home after the hubbub of the trial and Kevin recusing himself from it. Marianne tells Kevin that she's proud of him and that she'd always worried about what would happen to Kevin over the long term if he kept defending people he knew were guilty. Kevin is unsure of how to proceed and stays up half the night pondering his future. When he finally goes to bed, his sleep is plagued with nightmares of devilish figures and fiery imagery. The next day, Kevin is called before the Bar Association, who grill him about why he left his client. Kevin is unable to reveal the truth for fear of being disbarred, so he tells them that his client threatened his wife, which the Bar Association accepts, although they place him on probation. A week later, Kevin receives an invitation to a meeting with a different prestigious law firm in New York City called Lewis, Cipher, and Prince. Hmm. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Lewis, Cipher. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Okay. I don't hmm. see what's special about that at all. It's two no. different names. Yeah, it's totally different. 
Yeah. Okay. I wonder what's going to happen there. I don't know. Hmm. We'll have to wait okay. and see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, how about your day after then, Phil? Okay. Well, both Mary Ann and Kevin are excited about the interview. Having spoken to Larry some more, they're surprised about the connections he has with the big networks. Marianne is also very proud of Kevin for his decision to not represent the client. She feels it is a turning point. Kevin also feels like a great weight has lifted from him. They head off to the interview. Larry greets them and says that it will be shown on all major channels. They even cancelled an interview with a, a cop from LA who had stopped a mad bomber from blowing up a bus that had been going really fast. <laughs> that's my day after. I like it. <laughs> very fun. Okay, so what's happening with your immediate aftermath? Well, Kevin and Marianne travel to New York City, where they meet with the partners from Lewis, Cipher, and Prince. The partners tell Kevin that they were impressed with his integrity and that they can use a man like him on their team. Kevin expresses that he won't defend clients that are guilty anymore, and he'd rather retire as a lawyer than help guilty men go free. They assure him that that's the kind of person they're looking for. After the meeting, Kevin and Marianne leave, and the three partners shift forms, and Prince is revealed once again to be Satan slash Milton, mm -hmm. while Lewis and Cypher are two of his top lieutenants. Don't worry, sir, one of them says to Milton. We'll get him this time for sure. Ah. And that's, that's, uh, that's all you get for now. Very good. I like the fact he's got some, some lieutenants or generals or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Okay. All right. How about your immediate aftermath? Okay. The interview was a success. Marianne marveled at how well Kevin did. Larry was the perfect interviewer. Within hours of it being broadcast, Kevin is bombarded with interview requests, job offers for TV shows, films, and more. He is overwhelmed. Larry suggests that a PA could help him and introduces him to Christabella. And that's my immediate aftermath. Just a little short one. I see that. All right. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yes. Well... It will all pay off soon. So what's happening then with your, your long-term then with the uh, Louis, Cypher, and Prince? Okay, well, six months later, Kevin is in New York once again, working overtime and ignoring Marianne. Things are going down the exact same path as they did last time. As the nights get later and Kevin and Marianne's relationship gets more and more strained, Milton slash Satan is getting ready to feast on Kevin's soul once he gives himself over to him. One night, late at the office, Milton is about to win over Kevin's soul completely when two men break down the door to the office. They cover Milton in salt and set him on fire, then recite an incantation that sends him back to hell. Kevin is shocked. Who, who are you, he stammers. I'm Sam Winchester, says the tall one. <laughs> I'm Dean Winchester, says the short one. You are about to be in some serious trouble. We've been tracking this guy for months. But why didn't you just unfurl your wings? Kevin doesn't know what to say. And they tell him that he's actually an angel and that Satan has been trying to corrupt him because corrupting an angel would be the greatest victory that Satan could ever have against God. Wow. Kevin doesn't know what to make of all this, and he starts to panic. So Dean punches him in the face and knocks him out. <laughs> <laughs> While he's unconscious, Kevin so sees... <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> While he's unconscious, Kevin sees the events of the past few months play out in his dreams and comes to a realization of what's been happening. He wakes up in his house with the Winchester brothers nowhere to be seen. When Marianne sees the look on his face and asks him what, what's wrong, he says, I'm done being a lawyer. How would you feel about being married to a janitor? And <laughs> that's the end. Excellent. Oh, I like it. Thanks. I originally, originally I, I had it, him say, how would you feel about being married to a used car salesman? And then I realized that Satan would be way too happy about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd be really <laughs> that He would be like, oh, perfect. I get your soul yeah. anyway. Yeah, um, I've done so, it. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I was like, oh, I better, I better find a more noble profession. So. Oh, brilliant. No, I like it. Thanks. I, you know, I realize that um, I, I know it's kind of obvious to throw the Winchester brothers in there, but I'm a huge Supernatural fan, and I realized I think I've only ever had them in like one other 
after the ending before. They haven't popped up very often, so I thought this yeah, is Yeah, I remember them turning up. I can't remember which one it was, though, but... I just felt like it was time for the Winchesters to make another appearance because I'm such a big fan. Lovely stuff. So that's my ending. Let's hear how yours all comes together, Phil. Okay, well, Marianne keeps trying to see Kevin, but he always seems to be doing interviews or going to meetings and parties. Christabel promises she will s- sort out some free time for him. Kevin is loving the attention. He keeps meeting famous people, and his life is a crazy roller coaster but there's a small part of him that is not happy. While driving to a meeting for a potential presenting job, he asks the driver to pull over to Circle K. He tells Christabel he will be just a minute. He walks to the store, and passing a phone box, he stops. He looks back at the limousine, then enters the phone box. It's covered with graffiti. Most is obscene, but some catch his eye. The word station, a white rabbit, a surfboard, and a candle with a long wick. (laughs) But it is the words free will that seem to burn into his soul. He picks up the phone and dials a number. Marianne, I love you, he says. I'm coming home. And that's my long term. So, But wait, wait. There's a oh, post-credit scene. Oh, a post-credit scene from Phil. Is this your first one? I think it is, yeah. I yeah. think it is. Awesome. Let's hear it. Milton is looking in a book and shaking his head. He crosses out something and says, what should we try next? What do you got? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, that was fun. Nice job. All right, so uh, that is the devil's advocate. So, Phil, are you ready to play the trivia's advocate? Yes, I or, am. Or do you have any of the devil's trivia, I might even ask? I have the devil's trivia. Uh, he wants it back. It's actually Trivial Pursuit, <laughs> the devil. We uh, we played it the other night. <laughs> he's like, uh, I, damn it, Phil. You weren't supposed to take the game home. Yeah, he's like, he pops around all the time. He's quite, he's quite nice, but, uh, you know, he's got a job to do. Sure, but, sure, uh, you know. Okay, well, anyway, Keanu's suits in the film get darker as the film progresses. Mm. Uh, it was Connie Nielsen's film debut, and you'll, if you're not sure who she is, she played Wonder Woman's mother in the recent film. Yep. Uh, Al Pacino turned down the role five times, as it was originally going to be a more visual effects blockbuster type of thing. Ah. Uh, the outdoor patio that we see of Milton's office was actually on a 50th floor of a New York City building, so the view we see is the real view, and it's not a uh, green screen. Cool. Uh, Trump's apartment at Trump Tower was used as Alex Cullen's home. Alex Cullen was uh, the guy from Coach, Mr. Incredible. It's the bad guy in the film who isn't Satan uses that. They use the Trump Tower's apartment gotcha. as his home. And no no who... commentary whatsoever about any correlation. No, this is just, this is just a bit of trivia. Uh-huh. That's what it is. Uh, and some other actors considered at various points to play Kevin, the character of Kevin, were Brad Pitt, Christian Slater, John Cusack, and Edward Norton. Hmm. Interesting. All good actors. All yep. would have brought something a little bit different, but uh, it went with Keanu. Yeah, yeah. Good choice. All right. Very cool. So that is The Devil's Advocate. Let's move on then to a beloved by some uh, children's film, if you will, one Space Jam. Looney Tunes meets Michael Jordan. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much all I need to say, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> So do you want to give us a rundown then on uh, on the events of Space Jam? Sure thing. Well, Space Jam from 1996, starring Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny, as well as one Bill Murray and Wayne Knight, who most of you will know from Seinfeld and various other things. Uh, and the story goes like this. In 1996, Michael Jordan announces his retirement from basketball. Meanwhile, in space, there's an intergalactic amusement park that's doing poor business, so its evil owner, Mr. Swackhammer, sends his minions, the Nerd Lux, to capture the Looney Tunes as a new exhibit. They travel to the animated side of Earth known as Looney Tunes Land, but the Tunes challenge them to a game of basketball. The Nerd Lux then steal the abilities of five professional basketball players, Charles Barkley, Sean Bradley, Patrick Ewing, Larry Johnson, and Muggsy Bogues, which leaves those players unable to play, and the Nerd Lux as giant monsters with exceptional basketball skill. 
Bugs Bunny steals Michael Jordan and his nerdy assistant Stan and convinces him to play on their team to save the Looney Tunes. Eventually, the nerd lucks injure a bunch of the Looney Tunes during the big game, and Stan gets his chance to play and be a hero. Plus, Bill Murray shows up as the game's referee, replacing Marvin the Martian. I, I don't know how to make that make sense. It just happens. <laughs> uh, with Michael's help, the Looney Tunes win the game and recruit the nerd lucks into their ensemble, and Michael Jordan and Stan return to the regular world and return the powers to the basketball players. And that's Space Jam. Well, for that... Fair. You wrapped it up pretty well, considering the film in question. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there are definitely people out there that I think are a much bigger fan of this film than either you or I, Phil. Is that not correct? That's right. I only saw it for like in the, I only saw it for the first time about ten years ago. So I like seeing the Looney Tunes and Bill Murray, but the rest of it was all. It's not that great a film, but I can see why people love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually never saw it until uh, last year when they put out a 20th anniversary edition of it because when it came out originally, I was not a kid. I wasn't that interested in seeing it. And I, I can definitely – I know there's a lot of people who were kids when this movie came out who are big fans of it now, and I think there's a lot of nostalgia for it, which is part of why we chose to do it. I have some friends who are a little younger than me who love this movie. Yeah. But, it, it yeah, I'm not a huge fan of it. It's not, it's not terrible. I think, you know, I think kids would like it, but – um, it's certainly it's interesting to me is watching it for the first time as an adult. I saw a lot of opportunities for the film to have been better and to have been funnier. And I, I wish they had just had a better script for it because technically yeah. it looks great. But they just yeah they, just, the combination of live action and animation is really good yeah it just but it just seemed like a really dud script like there just wasn't very many jokes and the ones that were tended to fall flat and it just seemed like a wasted opportunity to me. No, I agree with you. Yeah. So, but we're gonna do it anyway. So, Phil, why don't you take us into your day after? Okay, Swackhammer is on the moon and plots his revenge. Jordan keeps playing baseball because that's how he ended up, and the Looney Tunes return to Looney Tunes land and keep on with their animated shenanigans. But they've all had a taste of sports, so they often play basketball, football, the British version where you use your feet, <laughs> uh, cricket, and other team sports. All their sports equipment is provided by Acme Corporation, which often results in hilarious consequences. Wiley Coyote is usually the first to quit. <laughs> and that's my day after. I like it. I'm not going to get into an argument with you about football versus soccer because the clues frankly, in the name, Mike. The clues in the name. I was going to say, if you let me finish, excuse me. Go on. <laughs> I was going to say, frankly, I agree with you guys. It should be called football. And American football should have a different name because you. soccer, you use your feet. You cook the kick the ball. It's football. Football. You yeah. throw the ball. It should be like air yeah. ball or throw ball or something like that. Yeah. So I'm actually yeah. on the Brit side or the, actually the rest of the world side. Yeah. Thank uh, you for this one. It means a lot. So. You could tell I was getting worked up to it, even though I'm not a football <laughs> fan particularly. But well, uh, and I I'm a big football fan. Um, but I you know I just it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. There's it's yeah. the one you only use your foot for one part of the game. And that's the least used part. Yeah. So it should be called hand occasional football. <laughs> right. Anyway. All right. Well, very cool. So what have you got then for your day after? Okay. Well, a few days later, Michael Jordan takes place in a charity match where he goes one-on-one -on -one with Air Bud, the basketball-playing dog. Oh, um, I forgot about Air Bud. Yeah, that has nothing to do with the rest of my ending at all. I just, I just really like the idea of a matchup between the greatest basketball player of all time and a basketball-playing golden retriever. So cool. once yeah. I had that in my head, I just I had to include it. Go on. Yeah, I like um, it. Anyway, Bugs Bunny gets caught up in the celebrity and the game and falls in love with basketball and decides he wants to become a professional basketball player. So he leaves the Looney Tunes world behind and heads back into the real world. He shows up at Michael Jordan's house and rings his doorbell one day. And when Michael 
simple answers. He says, eh, what's up, Doc? And that's my contribution to this episode's bad uh, bad impressions. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's good. I knew who it was. All right. Um, <laughs> shocked, Michael ushers him into the house quickly and tells Bugs that he can't just walk around the human world like that, that real people wouldn't understand seeing him alive and walking around. Bugs tells Michael of his basketball playing dreams, and Michael agrees to help him come up with a plan to make those dreams a reality. Mm. And that's my day after. Oh, very nice. Okay. Thank you. All right. How about your immediate aftermath then? Okay. Marvin the Martian has been keeping tabs on Swackhammer on the moon. Years have passed, and he's not been up to much, although he appears to be building something, possibly a radio. However, Marvin has a bigger problem. Something large has entered the solar system. It is blasting out on all frequencies. The force is so strong that it is damaging anything that comes near it. Marvin manages to narrow down the info he is receiving and finds out that the large structure is called Vija. <laughs> oh my, he says. My Illudium Q36 explosive space modulator won't help with this. And that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. And I have to say, one of your best impressions, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> and now you lost it. <laughs> I know it did. I just said it. I was going, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Don't improvise. Don't improvise with the impressions. It's bad news. Just do the read. Yeah, read the words in front. (laughs) Exactly. Do the read the words. Stick to the script, my friend. (laughs) What happens in your immediate aftermath? Oh, that's a a very good job of sticking to the script there, Phil. (laughs) Well, Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny brainstorm ideas, but nothing seems to stick. Bugs figures he can just dress in a trench coat and nobody will even notice that he's a cartoon rabbit. But Michael shoots that down by telling him that it's probably against league regulations to play professional basketball in a trench coat. Then Bugs suggests just wearing sunglasses and putting his ears underneath a baseball cap. But Michael points out again that his tail would probably be a dead giveaway. (laughs) Finally, Michael suggests heading to California to talk to a friend of his. Bugs and Michael arrive in California and pull up at a palatial mansion. When they ring the doorbell, a tall man dressed all in white comes down the stairs. He's wearing a bow tie and a suit, and when he sees Michael, he gives him a big smile. Michael, the man exclaims, what can I do for my old friend? Michael steps aside and reveals Bugs Bunny standing behind him. I think maybe you might be able to help my friend here, he says. A fellow rabbit, the man exclaims. Then he unzips his human suit and steps out of it, revealing himself to be Roger Rabbit. Oh, brilliant. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So how about then your long term? Okay, my long term. Marvin assembles a team. The Looney Tunes, the Animaniacs, Bill Murray, Dwayne Johnson, Tilda Swinton, Danny Trejo, and Nicolas Cage. (laughs) I was with you on the first few, and then it just took a left turn. Well, so Marvin tries to tell him what's going on, but Cage keeps shouting and pointing at thin air. (laughs) I say, I say, I got this, says Foghorn Leghorn as he stands up. And grabbing Yosemite Sam, he goes over to Nicolas Cage and starts shouting at him. Cage shouts back. Foghorn and Yosemite shout at each other, and they're all shouting, and, and Foghorn leads them all out of the door, and they're all pointing and shouting. There's lots of shouting going on. I see that. Now it's all gone quiet. Marvin introduces the final team member, William Shatner. <laughs> Shatner explains that for some reason the plot of Star Trek, the original motion picture, along with a little bit of Star Trek Four, are all mixed up and really happening. <laughs> what can we do, asks Bill Murray. I've no idea, says Shatner, who then leaves. <laughs> the stunned silence is interrupted by Bugs Bunny, who simply says, Daffy, it's time. Daffy Duck, brimming with excitement, jumps up and cries, I can't do a Daffy Duck impression. Time to save Earth in the name of Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. Tilda Swinton asks what exactly is going on. Danny Trejo just shrugs. (laughs) Daffy pulls a large lever. The floor opens up and everybody falls down large convoluted slides. As they fall, they end up getting dressed in sci-fi type silver clothes and each end up in the cockpit of a spacecraft and they launch into space, ready to combat Fiji. 
After an intense battle against alien fighter craft, they realize they're not powerful enough to defeat Vija. Duck Dodgers calls out, It is time to form Bolton. Don't you mean Voltron? Shouts Dwayne Johnson over the radio. No, he couldn't get the rights, replies Duck Dodgers. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson shrugs, and they all press the relevant button in their cockpit. Vija waits as all the Looney Tunes craft fly around and connect to form a giant Mecha Michael Bolton. Nice. The Mecha Bolton then begins to sing, How am I supposed to live without you? Vija starts crying due to the, the raw emotion in the song. Mecha Bolton hugs Vija. Vija apologizes for the mess and leaves the soul assistant. Earth is saved. Well, that was something, says Bill Murray. And that's all, folks. <laughs> nice. I, I, I really appreciate how you took the madcap, zany spirit of the Looney Tunes and infused your ending with it. Thank you very much, yes. It was a lot, it was, a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, it was all because of Dwayne Johnson. Sure, sure. I get so it. I, I, I think the Dwayne brings out the best in me. I, I think he brings out the best in all of us. <laughs> okay, that was, that was mine. What about your long term? Okay, well, it turns out that Roger Rabbit has been living in the human world since the release of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was a box office smash. He now lives a luxury lifestyle thanks to the royalties and the merchandise sales from that film, but he keeps a low profile and uses his human suit when he has to interact with other people. Some of my buddies in the Ink and Paint Club rigged this up for me, he tells Bugs. I'm sure they could do the same for you. Thanks, Doc, says Bugs. So Roger makes some calls, and before long, Bugs has a human suit, a six-foot-six, very athletic man. Pleased, he and Michael thank Roger and head back to Chicago. When the new season starts, Michael uses his clout with the team to get Bugs a tryout, and when he seemingly breaks the laws of gravity during his tryout, he instantly makes the team. In his first season, Bugs averages 82 points and 37 rebounds a game and becomes a superstar basketball player. Bill Murray pops back up to become Bugs' agent because that's just <laughs> as arbitrary as his appearance in the film. And in the offseason, Bugs continues to be the face of Looney Tunes, becoming a genuine double threat actor and sports superstar. And much like you had ended it, I end mine. The, 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 that's all, folks. That's oh, how we got to... I was going to try and do that, but I just couldn't. Yeah, Boy, we are just racking up the bad impressions in this episode. We've covered a lot of ground today. I think uh, the bad impressions are what people keep coming back for. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. You keep thinking that, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Very good. I like that ending. It was nice. Very thank good you. Ending. Thank you. Do you have some trivia jam to share with us? I do. <laughs> <laughs> so my, uh, my Space Jam trivia, the Looney Tunes practice in... Leon Schlesinger Jim and Schlesinger produced the first Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies cartoons. Cool. Uh, in one scene, when they're flying towards Moron Mountain, on the far right of the frame, you can see the monolith from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, cool. Looney Tunes director Chuck Jones was very critical of the movie, and he also felt Bugs Bunny would have single-handedly sorted out the aliens. Can't argue with Chuck Jones there. I gotta I say, I, I agree yeah, with him. Yeah, yeah. Bugs is you're always the one who sorts it out, isn't he? Yeah. Um, Bugs Bunny, though, never scores a basket throughout the film. Huh. That seems like an like a, like an oversight. I know, I know. Okay. But that's right. uh, Space Jam. Very good. Well, there you go. Those are our endings for this episode. Let's move on then to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes. And this week we tackle a classic year from the 80s. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your time machine and take us back to 1985. Okay. So, okay, then 1985, the U.K. Prime Minister was Margaret Thatcher and the U.S. President was Ronald Reagan. Uh, the Internet's domain name system, or DNS, was created. The first UK cellular mobile phone network was launched by Vodafone. British Telecom announced it will phase out the famous red telephone boxes. That was in no way linked with the previous uh, fact. <laughs> uh, Nelson Mandela rejects an offer of freedom from the South African government. William J. Schroeder is the first artificial heart patient to leave hospital. Wow. WrestleMania debuted at Madison Square Garden. 
Uh, Madonna launched her first concert tour, the Virgin Tour, in New York City. Coca-Cola released New Coke, which lasted for three months. Really? Is that it? It seemed like it was longer. It was only three months? I think that's just for the taste of it. Just going for a long time. Uh, Studio Ghibli was founded in Tokyo. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker serial killer, was caught in L.A. Record the Titanic was discovered. Super Mario Brothers, the video game, was released. A classic. Calvin and Hobbes debuted in 35 US newspapers. Also a classic. Yes. Elmo was introduced in Sesame Street. All the way back then, 85. Yeah, right. It's crazy. And the first version of Microsoft Windows was released. Wow. Uh, we also saw the births of Emil Hirsch, Kiva Knightley, Rooney Mara, Kerry Mulligan, Dave Franco, Leah Sidhu, Anna Kendrick, Tatiana Maslany, Amanda Seyfried, Deborah Amwal, Gal Gadot. Lana Del Rey, Chantel Van Santen, Tallulah Riley, Bruno Mars and Alison Pill. Um, we saw the death of Rock Hudson and Phil Silvers, but there's also film debuts of some cracking actors. Sean Astin, Josh Brolin, Don Cheadle, Whoopi Goldberg, Ethan Hawke, Elias Coteus, Dolph Lundgren, Viggo Mortensen, River Phoenix, Miranda Richardson, Mia Sara, Christian Slater, Danny Trejo, Stanley Tucci, Oprah Winfrey and Billy Zane. Very cool. So pretty good, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Okay, then. So what is your number 10? Well, you know, I like to pick out some uh, some underseen films once in a while, and this is definitely one of them. And this is a movie called The Quiet Earth, which is a really interesting sort of last man on Earth type of film. It's about a guy who wakes up and he's the only person left on Earth. And so he sort of goes about uh, this sort of, you know, living in a big mansion and doing whatever he wants. And then after doing this for a while and starting to lose his mind, he meets a woman. It's kind of like an unfunny version of the the TV series, The Last Man on Earth with Will Forte. Um, it's a New Zealand film, I believe. And I had never heard of it until they put out a DVD version of it a few years back and I watched it. And it's just a really cool, fun, different um, kind of film that, that was one of the I think earlier examples of that sort of last man on earth type of story done to its nth degree. And uh, it, it's got a kind of a weird ending, which actually if it had a better ending, it might have landed higher on my list. But it's yeah. a cool film that's worth tracking down and checking out if you haven't seen it. I really like that film. I don't know what you mean. Uh, cool. But I, I quite like the ending though because it, sort of, it sort of fits in with whatever it was that caused the thing to begin with. Right, right. And it's, this is a good one. As you say, it's, it's quite a serious one. But yeah. It's done, done extremely well. Yeah it's, yeah. yeah, it's well worth checking out. Cool. Okay, my number 10, though, is a film that I saw on a, originally saw on a Jonathan Ross TV show called The Incredibly Strange Film Show years ago, uh, where it's uh, Mr. Vampire, and it's a Hong Kong comedy horror directed by Ricky Lau, and it's uh, started off a few, a series of these films. It's based on the Jiangxi, the hopping vampire corpses of Chinese folklore, and it's quite, it's, it's you know, it's uh, lots of martial arts. It's got stars. It's produced by Sammo Hung. And it's just got lots of martial arts fighting these vampires, which hop and can be stopped if you put these uh, particular prayer scrolls on the foreheads. And it's very funny, very silly, but I always enjoy it when it comes on. Very cool. Well, we started off with a couple of really obscure films here, didn't we? 
We certainly did. <laughs> All right. Well, my number nine is a little less obscure, and it is Young Sherlock Holmes. Oh, I like that one as well. By, yeah. yeah, directed by Barry Levinson and starring Nicholas Rowe. Um, and it's just a movie that really I was obsessed with in my childhood. I've always been a yeah. Sherlock Holmes fan. I watched loads when I was a kid. <laughs> right? Yeah, I've always been a Sherlock Holmes fan. You know, this was him as a, as a young man sort of getting started out. It, it took a, a lot of nods to the uh, the Sherlock Holmes you know character and the legend, um, but was accessible to younger viewers. And it was just really fun kind of adventure film. And um, also one of the very first uses of CGI, if not the very first use of CGI, I believe, um, in a, in a oh, mission in yeah, a film, yeah. um, which, of course, blew my mind at the time. It was really, you know, the, the coolest special effect in the world at the time. So um, it's just a really fun movie that if you like Sherlock Holmes, I think it gets a lot of stuff right. And it, it's a lot of fun to watch. So that's my number nine, a real, real favorite of mine from my youth. An excellent pick. It almost it kept uh, bubbling in under the, for my list, but didn't quite make it but no most enjoyable film yeah yeah uh, my number nine is a double whammy because it's sort of uh, i wanted to include in both but it's uh both by done by some great horror directors uh, the first is life force by tobe hooper who sadly passed away and this one is basically space vampires stars patrick stewart matilda may frank finley steve Ellsback. astronauts go to this spacecraft which has appeared and it's beautiful men and women who are naked on it, they bring them back to Earth, and she, she starts sucking the life out of people, turn them into it, and it could be the end of the world. And the second film that makes my number nine is George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. Very good. Which I watched recently, watched all three of them with my friend Pete. But uh, Day of the Dead, it's probably the weakest of the three films, in my opinion, but I still really enjoy it. It's always good to watch, and that's why it's together with Life Force and Day, Day of the Dead, two horror, uh, maybe not quite almost classics. I'd say I'd say at least cult classics. Cult classics, definitely cult classics. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I like I like your choice, and I also like your methodology because my number eight is a tie between two films, um, and I, I did that mostly because I had more movies to fit into my top ten than I <laughs> than I could fit. So guess what? Yeah. I made cool. a couple ties. Go on. Uh, and they are two science fiction films, um, pretty different in their. Uh, the, really, the only thread I could find to tie them together was that they're both science fiction. But one is Daryl. That's the uh, the acronym. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Daryl, and the other is Enemy Mine, which is just a real favorite of mine. Um, now, now, Daryl, the reason I, I tied these together also is because I've watched both of them in the last couple of years after not having seen them for a long time. And both of them, I think, actually hold up surprisingly well. So Daryl is a story of a young robotic boy, a, a boy robot, if you will, who looks just like a boy and he kind of gets taken in by this family. But, of course, the government wants him back. And it was a film I really, really loved as a kid. And I watched it just last year and I still really enjoyed it. I mean the special effects and whatnot are dated, but the film as a whole – Holds up really well. Um, yeah. And then there's Enemy Mine, which is one of my favorite films from my childhood. And the only reason that, honestly, it isn't higher on my list is because the second half kind of falls apart a little bit. It's uh, Dennis Quaid <laughs> and Louis Gossett Jr. You know, Dennis Quaid plays a human. Louis Gossett Jr. plays an alien. It's sort of an update on The Defiant Ones, which I actually just talked about last week with Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis, where it's these two enemies who have to sort of learn to work together to survive. Um, and the first half of this film, to me, is just amazing. I love the relationship as it grows between these two characters. Uh, but then the second half, I, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it but it, it it suffers it's just not as good as the first half and it's unfortunate uh it's still a good film i still enjoy it but it would have been much higher if it was as good the whole way through as i wanted it to be yeah, i know exactly what you mean it's uh, i like it's i really like the film as well and it might be appearing a bit later on i would not be surprised if it does <laughs> okay well my number eight is return to oz interesting you know i don't know if i've ever actually seen return to oz to be to be honest with you well, I, I, I think I saw it when it came out, 
and it scared the crap out I've of me. I've heard that it's got some really intense moments. Because it's, it's a lot dark. Even it starts off and we got Dorothy Gale being played this time by uh, Fusebolk. She was, uh, I think it was her first role as well. Uh, but she's basically getting taken by Aunt Em and Uncle Henry to uh, an insane asylum where she's going to get electrotherapy treatment. So it starts off dark and gets darker. And we have, uh, we have these wheelers who are basically humans who have wheels instead of hands and they roll around after. And they're really creepy with these masks. And we got uh, Jean Marsh as the evil queen and then the... Uh, the the Gnome King, and it's dark, and it's great effects, though, practical effects mainly. And it, I just like the fact it's uh, it was scary, and it was twisted, and really... I don't love Wizard of Oz, but this one I really enjoyed the fact because it, it, it scared me. Yeah, sure. That's my number eight. All right, well, my number seven uh, answers the question, who's the master? And the answer, of course, is show enough. And that would be The Last Dragon, one of the great cult classics of all time. Phil, your silence tells me that maybe I've, you are I've never not seen familiar it. with this. I've never seen it. Well, I'm aware of the film. I'm aware of the film, but I've never seen it. It's one I, it's on my list of films I need to get hold of. You are in for some sort of a treat, mm. my friend. Um, th- yeah. I think there's two kinds of people in this, in this world, people who love The Last Dragon and people who haven't seen The Last Dragon. It is definitely one of the most culty of cult classics you will ever see. It is... <laughs> You know, it, 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 Vanity is probably the biggest name actor in it, um, and it's it's about this young man, um, and he's looking for the master so he can he can obtain the glow, which is like this m- mystical martial arts mastery, and it's got it's got some like musical numbers mixed in, like like and. I mean, it's really the cheesiest movie in the world, and it's one of those movies where I can see how you could watch it and be like. This is the worst movie ever made, you know, but it's so cheesetastic, like in every way. <laughs> and so, and I watched it, um, I watched it again just recently, and it is so 80s. And I don't even know how to describe it entirely, but I watched it again and I loved every minute of it. It is just so, <laughs> so much fun to watch. Um, so I don't know that I would call it a great film, but. Man, it's a great film. So I know a lot of people out there really, really like this film. It's a cult classic all the way, but it's a lot of fun. Good stuff. Okay, I'll check that out. You have to go into it expecting like a cheesy cult classic. You can't go into it like looking for like a real like serious film. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I fully expect that. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Well, uh, my number seven is one you just mentioned before, Enemy Mine. Very good. Again, great practical effects on the aliens. I know what you mean as well. The end falls apart a bit. Yeah. But uh, the... The like the Robinson Crusoe beginning and yeah. the conflict between the two is so well done and you know learning what's going to kill you on that planet right right yeah, but uh, a most enjoyable film and one I watched over and over again when I was uh, I was younger oh yeah me too for sure and directed by Wolfgang Peterson that's right one of he one mm-hmm. of his a string of great films from him before he sort of disappeared yeah very good okay well my number six is another tie. Uh, but this one definitely thematically works much better, though. It is Rambo, First Blood Part Two, and Rocky IV. I don't know how much more I need to say about these. Everyone knows I love Stallone, and I love the Rambo movies, but I especially love Rambo Two, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, it's the most action-packed and the silliest of, of – well, it's not worse than the third one. But it is just, as far as Stallone goes, kind of the apex of his just pure, flat-out action – ass kickery yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you know I mean really if you want to just put on a mindless movie and watch people get blown to crap for two hours you can't do better than Rambo <laughs> that's so, very true um, and Rocky IV I mean he fights Ivan Drago I will break you I mean it's Dolph Lundgren versus Sylvester Stallone what more can you ask for an excellent Sylvester Stallone duo for your number yeah. for your number six my number six is one we went after the ending for back in episode 28 and it is Lady Hawk very good directed by Richard Donner 
starring Matthew Broderick, Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer. It's a fantasy film where there's a couple who are cursed and the man is a wolf by night and Michelle Pfeiffer is a hawk by day and Matthew Broderick's a thief who's trying to help them and I, I love the film. It's a great concept. The way it's done is really good. The only thing that bothers me is that bloody soundtrack. <laughs> I know. I remember you saying yeah. that when we did that. Just all synths and stuff. It just doesn't fit with the fantasy elements but that's my number six. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I agree so much that my number five is Ladyhawk. <laughs> also, an excellent choice. You, you knew it had to be on my list. We talked about this when we did the episode. Oh, yeah. We both love this movie. Um, it's great. It's magical. It's fun. It holds up exceptionally well in my opinion. Uh, soundtrack aside, it looks great. Oh, it doesn't yeah, look yeah. like a film out of the 80s. And the, the romance and the magic and the humor really all all stands out and, and holds up. And Matthew Broderick, it's one of his, his best roles still. Yeah, you're great. right. It, it does look – it looks beautiful. And, and the uh, the buildings that they, they film in, like all the city scenes, just amazing. It's really, really good. Yeah. Okay, so my number five is – you mentioned it as well – Rocky Four. Very good. Yeah, well, I'm a fan of all the Rocky films. And this one, yeah, it's you know it's basically Rocky versus Russia, right? And you got the cool mon, you got the cool training montage in the snow, and doing all that, and you're going, oh my god, he's really doing all that, and then the big fights with Dolph Lundgren, and we got Bridget Nielsen being all Bridget Nielsen y and yeah, it's very patriotic, very over the top in places, but it just fits so well in the Rocky mythos. Yes, yes, and it does. it's my number five. Very good pick. All right, well, my number four is a comedy. And um, before I reveal what it is, I will just remind people that for many, many years, I ran my own website that was called IWantMy2Dollars.com. <laughs> and people would always ask me, what is that from? And I had it, a feeling this would be on your list. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is from one of my favorite comedies of all time, Better Off Dead, starring John Cusack. And this is a movie I can quote all day long. I, I will not do that to you, but I, it's literally impossible <laughs> for me to watch it and not quote half the film as I watch it. It's really, really funny. And, you know, of the classic John Cusack 80s comedies, of which there's a good number of them, this is definitely the one that the least amount of people have seen. But I would say it's by far most people's favorite. The people who have seen Better Off Dead, again, everybody I know who's seen this movie loves this movie. It has such a subversive sense of humor and so offbeat sense of humor. Uh, I absolutely adore this movie. And honestly, in any other year, this probably would have been my number one. But my my top three films were such powerhouses that Better Off Dead got knocked to number four. And if you know me at all – you know that's saying something because I am a I'm such a big fan of Better Off Dead that I named my website after a line of dialogue from an obscure eighties classic comedy. So uh, that's how much I love this film. No, I, I knew it'd be on your list, but I I just say there's lots of other films. So I can see why it didn't quite make the top, but it was it was another one of mine which almost made the list, but it kept getting pushed down when I suddenly went, oh wow. yeah, that that was this year as well. So good. Uh, my number four is uh, it's a another double bill, and I think this will make a good double bill. One's a horror, one's a comedy. And it is Fright Night and Weird Science. Uh, that is a good double bill, absolutely. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, so Fright Night, Chris Sarandon, there's a vampire moving next door to a kid's house and there's a kid's watches uh, Roddy McDowell do a horror show and he knows there's a vampire and then he's got to get Roddy McDowell to help him stop it. And it's lots of fun. It's quite funny as well, but it's it's quite frightening. Good good effects for the vampire. Some really good memorable scenes. And that's the first part of number four. And Weird Science, of course, Written and directed by John Hughes, Anthony Michael Hall, and Ian Mitchell Smith decide to make a woman on their computer, and Kelly LeBrock turns up looking all like 1985 Kelly LeBrock, and it's yeah. it's full of wonderful stupid scenes. It's got Robert Downey Jr. in it and the wonderful Bill Paxton as Chet. 
And so many, again, it's, it's, it's very quotable and so rewatchable and so, so stupid, but it just works so well. Yeah, very good. That is a good double bill, Phil. All right, well, my number three, I think, is going to be in your top three. Um, I'm pretty sure, actually. And again, this is another, this is a tough year, man. I'm telling you, this is another one that could have easily been number one and in almost any other year it would be. Yeah. It is The Breakfast Club. Okay, okay. And um, The Breakfast Club really is a generational film, I and mean, I think it's an iconic movie for our generation, uh, people who grew up in the 80s. I watched this movie incessantly as a kid, and I loved it. And then I watched it again as an adult, and I, I still loved it, but I remember thinking, I don't. this isn't as funny as I remember it. And then a, a year or so ago, I went to see it in the theaters at a, a special screening uh, locally, and uh, the, the what the great thing was, we screened the movie, and then Molly Ringwald came out and did a Q and A session. Oh, excellent! Uh, yeah, live and in person, she was there in the theater with us. It was really, really fun. Um, but here's the thing: watching The Breakfast Club with a full audience. It was hysterical. I laughed harder than I think I've ever laughed at that movie. Uh, I know it's not an opportunity everybody has to experience it with an audience, but if you get the opportunity, I can't recommend it highly enough. There's something about that film, especially being in a theater filled with mostly similarly aged people. It was it was brilliant, and it was hysterical, and it was moving, and I loved every second of it. It's just a great classic film. I think when you think of 80s comedies and when you think of movies that kind of define our sort of high school experiences and and lives yeah the yeah. breakfast club is the one it's a very good film i'd love to see it on the big screen actually that'd be nice yeah a lot of fun but uh, my number three is P- uh, pale rider which was ah good 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 film produced directed by and starring clint eastwood and it's one of my i do like his his western films but i really like pale rider because it's the whole you know he's the preacher who just rides in to save the town but you're not you're not sure is he is he a ghost is he a, a revengeful a vengeful spirit to return you know to to bring a reckoning on the uh, the bad guys, led by Richard Dysart. I just love the way it's done, the music, the strange you know music that goes through it all, and just the way Clint Eastwood plays it, and the the few fight scenes. There's only a few, but the the shootouts and the bits with the uh, he's got like the wooden axe handle or pickaxe handle is just it's just it's mystical, magical. And it's a damn cool Western. Yeah, I really like that film, actually. It did not make my list, but it was on my short list for consideration. It is a really good, you know, very classic Clint Eastwood uh, Western, yeah. but it's a little bit darker and a little bit you know, different from some of his other ones. But I do really like it. Yeah. Well, my number two is a classic film from my childhood that holds up so well to this day, and I think... Uh, 99% of our listeners are going to agree with me that this is one of the top two films of the year. But, Phil, I don't <laughs> think you're going to. I think I know what it, it is. It is what is The it? Goonies. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's The Goonies, yeah. You're not a giant fan of The Goonies, right? No, I, I enjoy it when it's on. Right. Uh, but it, it doesn't have the fugitive effect for me. If it's on, I can quite happily <laughs> not watch it. I got you. It's mainly because I came to it late on in life. I didn't see it when I was when it first came out. So yeah, I can see how that would. I can see how that would change. Although, I mean, I guess it's tough. I still th- watch it and think it's magical, but um, I, I, I do have that nostalgia sheen to it. So I, it's hard for me to to say what it would be like without that. But um, it is a film I love dearly. I. I can't even tell you how many times I watched this movie as a kid. I know I saw it multiple times in the theaters, which is not something I did a lot as a kid. Yeah. Um, and I just loved it. I, it started, you know, it was one of the first movies with Corey Feldman. I've talked about on the show before about how what a big Corey Feldman fan I, I am. Uh-huh. Um, it made me want to go hunt for treasure. It got me interested in pirates. Like, it's just... No, I, I, love, I love the treasure hunting and the pirate kind of thing. Yeah, but, you know. yeah, I mean, I had the Souvenir magazine. I mean, anything Goonies I could get my hands on, I, I did. I was obsessed. 
obsessed with this film. And honestly, over the years, that hasn't ever really waned at all. Um, I just I really love this movie, and I don't think I need to say too much more about it. I think most people feel relatively the same way. Well, that's no, it's good. I can I knew it was going to be in your, at least your top three. Yeah, so yeah, for sure. Well, my number two isn't the Goonies. Okay. Uh, but it's uh, The Breakfast Club. Very good. Yeah, so you said pretty much everything. It's, uh, I just love it. And I mean, it's, when you said, when you saw it when you're, you know, a few years back and it didn't seem as funny, I can understand that because it's quite a serious thing about these kids coming together. But it's just, in most situations, you do, there's always humour. And I think right. I always feel John Hughes did that really well. He brought out the natural humour, these people just sitting there talking and just trying to get through the uh, the Saturday in detention. It's, it's so well done, so many good scenes, and the humour is very funny, but there's, it captures being kids and at that turning point in your life where you don't know what's going to happen and what you're going to do. And all these people who you think are got it all sorted out when you're together, you realize everybody's in the same position. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it 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 really captures those those high school archetypes that are both stereotypical and also very, very true. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the jock and the geek and the prom queen and the, the rebel and all that. And um, but I think, you know, what it was for me, I think what, what I had forgotten is, you know, I think you forget when you, when you haven't seen it for a while is they don't you think of it as this movie about these guys becoming great friends and, and coming together. But they don't really like each other until pretty much like the last five or ten minutes of the movie. Yeah. Like yeah. even you're like 20 minutes from the end and they all still kind of don't like each other and are still, still kind of being mean to each other. And I, I had sort of forgotten that when I watched it kind of as an adult. And that sort of was like, oh. Like, oh, I thought that they were more friends. But then watching it again more recently, I I, I see why that happens and how it happens and how brilliant it is. And it's much more realistic for yeah, that. Definitely, think, yeah, definitely. So. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's my number two. So we both had it in our top three, didn't we? Yes, we did. And I have a, a feeling that I'm about <laughs> to reveal a film that is my number one that is also your number one. I don't think there's uh, any chance that I'm wrong about this. But let's see. My number one is... Well, yeah, it's obviously Brewster's Millions. <laughs> I like that movie. I do as well. It almost made my list. Uh, but no, my but number one is... Spies Like Us. I like that movie too, Sorry, actually. Almost, but... yeah. Sorry, go on. Go on. We, know, we, know, we know what it's going to be. It is Back to the Future, oh, of course. <laughs> no, you're right. It's my number one as well. Back to the Future. How How could it not be? Yeah. I mean... When you want to talk about classic movies, whether it's classic film, classic 80s film, classic comedy, classic time travel, I mean, it's brilliant. And it's Michael J. Fox in one of his best roles ever, Marty McFly. I mean, there's a reason why Back to the Future is still referenced in pop culture every single day, practically. And it's not just because a few people remember it. It's because it's a truly, truly amazing film. Uh, It's funny and it's exciting and it's thrilling and it's got time travel and it's got romance and, you know, comedy and nods to science fiction, all so this great much, stuff. So much. It really does. And it's got the great it's just design, a magical the design of the DeLorean is just inspired. Yeah, yeah, it is. Christopher Lloyd and the whole the whole plot and you know meeting his parents and he's gotta make them fall in love. It's just Yeah, it's just such a great concept for a film, you know? It just it just how do you go wrong with that? They got it you know, there's been lots of time travel films and most of them are always pretty good, but Back to the Future just gets its spots on. They just yeah. just does it so well. Yeah, it really does. It just gets everything right. The casting is perfect. The dialogue is perfect. You know, the situations everyone finds themselves in, it, you know, it, it just works from, from the very first minute to the last. I'll never forget watching it for the first time, and I've seen it dozens of times since then. And I love the whole trilogy. So it's not only just a classic film, but it's a classic film that then turned into, you know, three pretty great films yeah, all around. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it, had to, it had to be number one. There was no other. When I saw what was on this in 1985, I knew that was going to be my number one. Yeah, pretty much as, as I did too. Like I said, it knocked some, some pretty good films down. I mean, I love The Goonies, I love The Breakfast Club, and I love Better Off Dead, but Back to the Future had to, had to be number one. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's pretty... 
pretty fine list we both got there. Indeed. Mm. Well, that's going to wrap up our top 10 films of 1985, and it's going to start to wrap up our episode as well. Uh, Phil, why don't you tell people what they can look forward to next week? Well, next week we will be going after the ending of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year, which yeah, I, find, about that one. I find that exciting and frightening. It's 40 years old. How is yeah, that possible? Crazy. I, my, I don't know. In my head, I'm still about 21. <laughs> so yeah, we're doing Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and also Smoke and Aces. Yeah, fun little film from Joe Carnahan. Should lots be... of good characters, lots of good uh, fight scenes, shootouts, lots of humour. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens to the survivors of that film yes. after the ending. And we'll also be doing our top 10 favourite films of 1993. Yeah, it should be a jam-packed episode. I am looking forward to it. Uh, but in the meantime, that is going to do it for this week. So as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Testing, testing. Check I'm eating one. a flapjack as I say this. Hmm. Yeah, are you? Yes. Like a pancake. That's a flapjack, right? Oh, no, no. It's uh, over here. We call them flapjacks. It's uh, like a muesli bar kind of thing. Oh, that makes so much more sense because I was like, it's kind of weird that you're just sitting there eating like a pancake, like like pancake with no syrup even like that's just bizarre no god no no my mom had uh my mom had made some <laughs> that's only monsters do that i basically talked my way into matt damon yeah. so um that sounds but, really so bad send you... you talked your way into yeah. matt damon did he know <laughs> or or does it sound really good <laughs> depends if matt damon enjoyed it <laughs> i don't see why two men can't you know sit on a couch watch a movie about vikings and, and cuddle and not have to be labeled <laughs> As some kind of you know some kind of thing. I just I don't see why that why That's that has it. to be that. As long way. as there's snacks, I'm happy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what we have in blah blah blah, and that's and and no, <laughs> I can't even do it. <laughs> and it's funny because I watch this kid incessantly. I watch this kid. No, I didn't do that. That would be weird. I, I yeah, we were doing so good. Yeah. Alrighty, well, in that case, then, not in that case, that doesn't make sense. What, what, what am I talking about? I'm losing it at the end, Phil. I was doing good the whole time, and now I'm just losing my mind. Bring it back together. Come on, you can do it. You okay. can do it. Bring okay. it home. <laughs>